Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Hey, good morning. It's Vaughn Jones. It's Monday. This is Seattle Now. It's mid-October. The air is crisp, the morning fog is thick, and Halloween is just around the corner. Which means it's time to tell some ghost stories. Today, we're revisiting a conversation we had with local author Bess Lovejoy, who wrote a book on where to find spots in the Pacific Northwest where ghost stories have been told and retold. But first, let's get you caught up. Keep an eye out for your mail-in ballot for November's general election. Those are getting sent out on Wednesday. If you're not registered to vote, you have until October 30th to do that by mail or online. You have until November 7th to send your ballot back, or you can put it in a Dropbox starting Thursday. The International Great Shakeout Earthquake Drill is this Thursday at 10.19am. It's a great time to practice your drop, cover, and hold maneuver without having to deal with the real thing. The event is organized in part by the Washington Emergency Management Division, which means we'll also be hearing the state's tsunami sirens being tested out around the same time. Just don't panic, it's only a drill. And the Kraken play their first home game of the new season tomorrow. They've been on the road for the first three. So watch out for traffic around Climate Pledge or on the monorail if you take that. They play the Colorado Avalanche, who were victims of the Kraken's strong playoff run last year. The current cheapest ticket on Ticketmaster will run you about $85. The big dark is here, and for some, it's a time to engage in spooky stories that offer us a glimpse into perhaps something beyond what we can define. I remember talking to a former coworker about this, and she sort of said, it would be so boring if, like, this is all that there is. And I think a lot of us lead these, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but pretty busy, pretty prescribed, schedule-oriented kind of lives. It's really, you know, going from one thing to the next, very goal-oriented. And it's sort of lovely to stop and take a moment and think about what else might be happening beyond this plane. That's Best Lovejoy. Her new guidebook chronicles the ghost stories that have endured in our region. It's called Northwest Know-How Haunts. And Best says as far as the stories included in this book go, whether or not they're true isn't the point. Not setting out to prove or disprove ghosts with this. I think the fun is in the storytelling and in that spookiness and in that mystery. It's kind of tantalizing for people. I met her down at Pier 70, the setting of one of the stories in her book, and I asked her, what makes a good ghost story? One of the things I thought about sort of while writing this book it was, what is a ghost really? A ghost is something that remains. And I think part of what's so fascinating about ghost stories in the Pacific Northwest is that this region has just undergone so much transformation. And the ghosts sort of remind us of our earlier histories, which unfortunately, in a lot of cases, were kind of rough. I mean, the history here begins with brutal treatment of Native Americans. And then these resource-based industries that were that could be really violent, you know, had a lot of accidents, logging, mining, sailing, that kind of thing. But for a region that has changed so much and that has so many newcomers, I think some of these ghost stories tie us back to that older history and they sort of commemorate some of the people that have lived here before and that made these communities. 
What I tried to do actually was focus on the most loving ghosts that I could. And that might have been partly because I was writing this in closest we got to lockdown in spring 2020. And I really wanted to focus on stories that involve some joy and some hope. So a lot of them are stories of people who just loved places so much they didn't want to let go. Like the hotel proprietor who never left, you know, the woman who fed tea and cookies to kids every Sunday and just wanted to keep doing that. The husband and wife who went on dates to the theater every Friday night those kinds of stories. I'm glad you mentioned uh, that you were intentional about looking for more hopeful stories because we're standing out here at Pier 70, which back in the day before Real World 98, uh, in the 1910s and 20s, this was a canning and fishing operation. This was a really busy port, and a lot of stuff happened here. And there actually is a ghost story from Mm -hmm. Pier 70. Mm -hmm. There's actually a few, but my favorite one has to do with a ghost um, that some people have nicknamed Paddy, who is a sailor ghost. And he shows up in like a peacoat and a slouched hat. And there used to be a Pier 1 Imports in here. And a lot of the stories um, were connected to him originally. Uh, Employees would see him at closing time, kind of in a mirror out of the corner of their eyes. But then there are stories that people would see him out on the pier. And especially people who were um, coming here feeling very depressed and potentially thinking about ending their lives. And Patty would give them a pep talk, like a very, you know, encouraging talk about how life is worth living. And then the person would start to feel better, kind of turn around to thank this, you know, grizzled sailor. And the sailor would be gone completely. So kind of love that story. You know, I wonder if the Pacific Northwest has a more spooky vibe than other places. Mm-hmm. Twilight was set here, but that was fiction. But we also have, like you talked about, our fair share of serial killers in yeah. this region. Yeah, there's definitely our fair share of serial killers. I also think the weather undeniably has something to do with it. Certainly we've got that whole season called the Big Dark, and just all of that gloom, I think, uh, contributes to some unstable mental states perhaps. <laughs> There's also a theory, I don't know what I think of this personally, but some paranormal experts talk about um, water and rain as kind of a spiritual conductor that it sort of can concentrate emotions, carry emotions and so places that are soaked in water tend to have more spectral presences. I've heard about this also like with the southeast and Louisiana's ghost stories on the swamps and that kind of thing. Uh, So Bess, you had to collect all of these stories which required a ton of history and research I'm sure. Tell me a little bit about your process here. Mm-hmm. Well, the process was especially, uh, let's just say, interesting because I was doing a lot of it in 2020, which was such a difficult year. So there was no going to bars to interview bartenders or, you know, talking to any locals around, unfortunately, at least not on site. So what I did actually was drew on a number of really wonderful books um, that have been written about this region. And some of them are by people who consider themselves, you know, paranormal experts that are, have really gone into the field with recording equipment in some cases. Um, I, but I also really enjoyed a book, I think it was from the late 80s, by a folklorist and anthropologist. Um, his name is Margaret Reed MacDonald. And the book is just called Ghost Stories from the Pacific Northwest. And she spent a lot of time coming through old newspaper reports and oral histories She's also, I mean, she's such an anthropologist. She has like a 
subject location index, a ghostly motif index. You can cross-reference it. It's really, it's really the work of a devoted scholar. Um, so what I did was just started collecting all of the stories, and I think I initially just tried to group them sort of thematically. I forgot also to mention earlier that one of my criteria was, whenever possible, to not be directing people to private residences, because I didn't want to encourage trespassing. So I wanted the stories to be about locations that are open to the public. And then, like I said, ideally some of these more hopeful stories. So it really was about cross-referencing among the books by the folklorists, in some cases going back to newspaper archives, the books that the paranormal had, experts had written. I spent a little while looking around on the web also just for, you know, random reports and sightings, but I tried not to go, you know, I'm old, so I still think things on the internet might be suspect. <laughs> So I really did try to cross-reference and see where, where the stories align and have been repeated enough times that it seemed like it would be worth including in such a small book. Because it is a, just a little guidebook. So I think I say in here that it's sort of meant to be like a sampler platter of spirits, you know. It's not, a, it's not meant to be exhaustive. I'm glad you uh, talked about how these stories what was worth including in the book because mm-hmm. it makes me wonder how a ghost story actually becomes something that becomes mm-hmm. part of history, part of the dialogue in a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think some of it must just be repetition. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of ways it could happen. I mean, in, in some cases it could be if, if a trusted figure sees something particularly strange, um, you know, a really colorful story and then talks about it. And then I think in some cases, like the ghost of Patty, the one here on Pier 70, I think there were numerous stories from employees who saw things that were suggestive of one another. Lots of similar stories. And then I think over time, um, those stories get told and retold. I think also in some cases people get lucky. You know, it could be that there was a television special about a particular story. Something was caught on camera. I saw one weird instance of that. Sometimes uh, the ghosts just get lucky and their stories continue because of one one person paying a lot of attention to them. Trusted storytellers and repetition. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not who you are. It's does your PR. <laughs> Ghost <laughs> PR. Yep. That's a television show premise. Wow. <laughs> so, Bess, you collected all these stories. I wonder, what did you learn? Well, I learned a little bit more about the region's history. But I'm actually a fifth-generation Pacific Northwesterner, so I I sort of knew the the broad outlines already. I think one of the things that surprised me while I was doing my research was actually how happy a lot of the ghost stories were, because like a lot of people, I expected the stories to be pretty dark, um, but it it wasn't hard for me, you know, once I decided I wanted to include the happier stories, to just find them everywhere, Um, and just stories about how much people loved this region and put their whole lives into it to the extent that they wanted to stick around. It's interesting because life was very difficult, right? This was a difficult, Mm -hmm. hard living, violent town with industry that was dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about the fact that so many of the stories ended up hopeful? Well, that's an interesting point. And I think to get to just draw a connection here in case it's not obvious to people... I think the idea that it was a hard place may have meant that people lived their lives really with a lot of emotion and commitment to this place. Maybe they could have been somewhere else that that was easier. And there's this idea that when people pour a lot of emotion into a place, it can hold on to it. And then perhaps, unfortunately, if they, you know, die a violent death, that kind of strong emotion can can be tied to a place. So I guess what's surprising is, is just that there still are so many hopeful 
stories at all. And I think it sort of speaks to, you know, if it's not too cheesy, the resilience of the human spirit and the fact that in the midst of all of this difficulty, we still find ways to create joy. I'm thinking actually of a story in Portland, because the book includes uh, Washington and Oregon. There's a place called the Crystal Ballroom um, that had all these dances for years and years. I think it's now a venue. And people still hear the sounds of music and the squeak of heels on the floor from people dancing. And so it's really kind of like still just held on to all of this joy, despite Portland also having a very rough history. And I think that's really kind of beautiful. Best love, Joy. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for your insight. Yeah, it was wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. This show is only possible because of your support. Just click the link in the show notes to make it happen, and thanks. Today's episode was produced by Caroline Chamberlain-Gomez, Claire McGrain, and Lucy Suchek. Our Haunted production team also includes Jenny Cecil Moore, Matt Martin, and me. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Vaughn Jones. Patricia Murphy will be back tomorrow. Hi, Trish. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.